Merry Christmas. How are we all doing this evening? Kids, how you doing? Are there any kids out there? No? Do I need? There you are. I got one. I got one. Uh, how many, this is a question for the kids. How many of you kids are going to uh, get your presents open this evening? Just, just wave your hand around there a little bit. A few. How many are tomorrow morning? Like all normal people. Yeah. Okay, there we go. All right, well, whether you get your presents tonight or tomorrow morning, uh, that's uh, fantastic either way. Well, we, it was good to have uh, you all here. Of course, our regular Calvary folks, great to see you and celebrate Christmas together. If you are in town or uh, with family or maybe your friends that have come with folks that regularly attend here, welcome to you. We're very glad uh, that you are here this evening. And uh, we have been working our way through the Advent season through Matthew's gospel, uh, particularly chapters one and two, looking at the way that he highlights some of the Old Testament prophecies that point to or are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And so we've worked through four of those already, and we get to our last Old Testament prophecy, the fifth of all the prophecies that Matthew mentions in chapters 1 and 2, that point towards Christ, and that is found for us in Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 19 through 23. So if you happen to have a Bible, or maybe you've got one on your phones, or there are some in the pew racks in front of you there. Let's read our our text uh, this evening, and if you would stand, please, uh, for the reading of God's Word, I will read it for us. You follow along uh, there in your copy of God's Word, Matthew 2, 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Word of the Lord. All right. Well, we're here in our text concluding out Matthew's uh, account of Jesus' birth. Chapter 3 is going to skip about 30 years, and then we get into Jesus' life. So chapters 1 and 2 give us all the accounts we have in Matthew's gospel of Jesus' birth. And the last time we left Jesus, he and the family were down in Egypt. You may recall the Christmas story. Herod was trying to kill Jesus, had heard that Jesus was born, and Herod was the king. He didn't think that another king should be born in his territory and was so trying to to find out more about Jesus and kill him. And so Joseph was warned in a dream, took Mary and Joseph and Jesus down into the land of Egypt to hide. And then Herod eventually died, probably about a couple years or so later, and the Lord sent another angel to Joseph, telling him it was time to bring Jesus back to his home, back to the land of Israel. So Joseph sets out for Israel. 
He likely, we think, intended to settle in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, but Archelaus, Herod's son, had become the king, or not the king, but the ruler in Herod's place, and Archelaus, we know from historical records, was even more cruel and wicked than Herod, and uh, not as politically astute, and so... Joseph, being warned in a dream, decided that going to Bethlehem wasn't a good option, and he withdrew, the text tells us, to the district of Galilee, to a small village called Nazareth. And so Jesus here is now in Nazareth, and we get to Matthew's final prophetic word. We've already read it in verse 23. He's been... Uh, moved to Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled and he would be called a Nazarene. All right, so what do we know? Maybe, maybe this isn't your first rodeo around the Christmas story, but perhaps it is. What do we know about Nazareth? What do we know about this prophecy? Let's see what we can figure out just briefly here tonight. First, Nazareth. What do we know about Nazareth? The answer is not much. We don't know much about Nazareth. So even if this is your second rodeo, you still don't know anything about Nazareth because no one really knows a whole lot about Nazareth except that it's a traditional Jewish agricultural community. It's made up mostly of sustenance farmers and tradesmen. Nazareth was a little tiny, almost no-named village in this region of Galilee. So here's this kind of tradesmen, farm, agricultural community of Galilee, and Jesus and the Messianic family go to this town called Nazareth, this little village really within the middle of this area of Galilee. It's so small and unimportant, Nazareth is, that even, that's not even mentioned in the Bible, that's not even mentioned outside of the Bible until the third century AD. It's the biblical equivalent of Nowheresville. That's where Jesus has ended up. He has been taken away by Joseph and Mary into Nowheresville. And that's where he is living. Even the Greek word that Matthew uses in verse 22 that's translated withdraw suggests the obscurity of the area. Do you see what it says there? That Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee. That term is used frequently in Scripture to speak of Jesus later in his ministry, withdrawing away from the crowds to secluded spots. So Jesus is already withdrawing, as it were, even as a small child, away from the crowds into seclusion. So Nazareth is an obscure little village in an unremarkable region. And then we have the prophecy, he shall be called a Nazarene. You know, when we started out the Christmas season, and I was trying to think, what are we going to do for the Advent season? I need four sermons, and then Christmas Eve, so if I could find something with five, that would be great. And I'm like, Matthew, it's got four prophecies, and then this fifth, that could be Christmas Eve, perfect, we're going to go with it. But, I, but it's one of those things where it looked good on paper about a month and a half ago, and then you're into it, and you have to look, come to this text here in 223 on Christmas Eve, and you're not quite sure exactly what to do with it. Because I go to the commentaries, the scholars, and try to figure out what this means, and it turns out that no one knows what this means. (laughs) 
So we don't know where Matthew got this prophecy. It's nowhere in the Old Testament. It's nowhere in any of the Jewish writings. He says, as the prophets have said, that's a little bit like saying, you know, you know what they say, who are the they? We don't really know who the they are, right? As the prophets have said. So Matthew has some knowledge somewhere of some prophets who have said something about Jesus coming from Nazareth, but we don't know where he's got that from. Ever since Matthew 2 was written, scholars have been trying to figure out what prophetic tradition Matthew is referring to. One interpretation that I've read that I'm going to go with for this evening suggests that the obscurity of the prophecy is precisely Matthew's point. We know from later gospel accounts, particularly as we get later into Jesus' life and Matthew and some of the other gospels, that, uh, that Jesus... Uh, that anyone who knew anything about anything related to the Messiah knew that no one of import came from Nazareth. Maybe you remember some of this, but Nathaniel in John chapter 1, who was one of Jesus' early disciples, he's told that the Messiah has been found and the Messiah comes from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, what good can come from Nazareth? There's nothing good that comes from Nazareth. And then some of the Jewish religious leaders later at the end of Jesus' ministry, when people were saying that Jesus was the Messiah, they said, search the scriptures. You will find that there is no prophet that comes from Nazareth. So Jesus, as the proclaimed Messiah, was not expected to come from Nazareth in the common opinion. Perhaps Matthew's point in saying that Jesus was destined to be a Nazarene, as in one who comes from Nazareth, is a way of saying that Jesus' obscurity was part of God's plan all along. Everyone, in fact, expected the Messiah to be born where? Y'all know? We did this in one of their earlier sermons. Where was he expected to be born? In Bethlehem, right? And the religious leaders knew that. So when Herod asked the religious leaders, where is this king of the Jews going to be born. They went to the scriptures. They found the prophecy that said the king of the Jews would come from Bethlehem. They said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Everyone expected the Messiah to come from Bethlehem because Bethlehem was the city of David, the great Jewish king. And the Messiah was said to be the son or the descendant of David. And so Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem, but he fled for his life so quickly after down to the land of Egypt and then now has gone into Nazareth. No one really knew where Jesus was. And as he grew up in Nazareth, they didn't know that he had been born in Bethlehem. We often, in the Christmas season, perhaps you've been in church and heard it, that we like to highlight the birth of Jesus in the tiny village of Bethlehem to, to kind of show Jesus' humility and, and his condescending down to come among us. He who was born in the glories of heaven comes down to the little manger in Bethlehem. It was, it's a sign of Jesus' humility, we often say. But Bethlehem, in fact, is of royal origin. Bethlehem is the city of the great King David. The name Jesus of Bethlehem would have meant something for Jesus' ministry. But instead, we have Jesus of Nazareth. That's a bit like saying Jesus of Morton. And you say, where's Morton? And I say, exactly. You don't know where Morton is, unless perhaps you grew up in Morton. It's a little town outside of Peoria, right? Maybe my grandparents grew up in Morton. So unless you grew up in Morton or your grandparents lived in Morton, you probably don't know where Morton is. So for Jesus to come from Nazareth, to be called Jesus of Nazareth, it doesn't, 
It doesn't mean much. Whatever prophetic tradition or statement Matthew was referring to, the point of the passage as a whole, I think, is pretty clear. Jesus grew up in obscurity. He was born in anonymity, and he spent his growing up years and his early adulthood in obscurity, unknown. What was it like for Jesus to grow up in Nazareth of Galilee? Who knows? He was just another little boy from a poor family of no meaningful influence in just another obscure little village in an obscure and unimportant Jewish region. And if the Christmas story ended there, if that's where the Christmas story ended, Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2, Jesus is born, the angels, the shepherds flight into Egypt, and he ends in Nazareth, and that's the end of the Christmas story, there would be no Christmas story. Jesus would be just another forgotten man from a forgotten region. So forgotten, in fact, that he wouldn't even have been known enough to forget about him. The Christmas story in Matthew 1 and 2 can't stand alone from the rest of Jesus' story. It struck me even as we were singing our songs this evening that as we sing of the birth of Jesus, of his coming into the world, of God sending him amongst us, that we can't help but project out into the future of Jesus' life and the work that he then went on to do. The Christmas story doesn't end in Matthew chapter 2 in obscurity in some obscure little town of Nazareth. Even in the midst of Jesus' obscurity for that 30 years where we really don't know what his life was like with any detail, God was still at work and working out his plan. Jesus emerges from obscurity in Matthew chapter 3. He becomes a great teacher who teaches humanity how to love each other, to live in peace with each other, and how to return back into relationship with God. And even more than just becoming a great teacher who taught us a wise way to live, he also came to make a way for us to live in that way and to return to God. The gospel will go on to speak, Matthew will go on to speak about how Jesus took upon himself the sins of the whole world from its very beginning until its day and then even on into today. And in a way that is hard to fully understand and is even harder to explain, Jesus put an end to sin and death through his own sacrificial death on the cross. He took upon himself all that was broken, all that was ruined, and all that was wrong with the world. All the sin and the death and the despair and the sorrow. Your sin and death and despair and sorrow, my sin and death and despair and sorrow. He took it all upon himself and he killed it with him on the cross. And then miraculously, he rose from the dead free of all of it, leaving it behind in the grave. And not only did he rise to new life, free of all the ruination and sin of humanity and, the, and what we have wrought, 
But all who are in him, all who belong to him, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, rise with him to this new life, forgiven from all that we have done in our wandering away from God and in our grievance and violence with each other, to live now into the very life that Jesus has come to impart God's own life. The message of Christmas doesn't end in Matthew chapter 2 in obscurity, but the message of Christmas is that God has not forgotten us. He has not forgotten us on this obscure little planet lost somewhere in the vastness of the universe any more than he forgot Jesus in his obscure little town of Nazareth. At Christmas, we remember that God has come to us in the person of his son and has brought and is bringing us new life that will one day fully and finally heal the sorrow and the pain and the sin of the world. One of the last things that we have recorded of Jesus' words all the way back at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon and I'm making all things new. This is the hope that we look forward to at Christmas time, the celebration of Christ's coming to begin this work of restoration in our hearts and in our world. And then we look forward to his coming again when he will complete the work that he has begun that first Christmas. We would be remiss at Christmas to fondly celebrate Jesus' birth while neglecting to receive his life. He offers himself to us and in him free forgiveness and new life to any who ask in faith, to any who call out and confess their need of him. Are you a Christian this Christmas Eve? I know many of you are. Then be reminded tonight in this final prophecy that God is working even in your obscurity, even when you can't see it, when I can't see it, when it doesn't seem like anything much significant is happening, his plan for us is still unfolding. Are you not yet a Christian this Christmas Eve? I imagine that many of you are not. Perhaps you've come with friends or family, or maybe you have been coming to Calvary for a while but are just uncertain yet as to whether or not you will give your life to Christ. Let me invite you into the new life that Christ freely offers. Not only the life that is offered to us at this first Christmas, that we read about here in Matthew's chapters 1 and 2, but that is offered Christmas after Christmas after Christmas after Christmas. God wants those whom he has made to come back into relation with him, not because he's needy, not because he's lonely, not because he's looking for something to do, but because he loves us and he knows that we flourish best when we are in relationship with him. So let's, in this Christmas season, in this time, be reminded that Jesus is indeed, as we're about to celebrate, the light that has come into the midst of our darkness. 
We're trapped in our darkness, our death, our sin, but God has sent Jesus into our darkness to lead us back to himself and to teach us how we should live with each other. So we're going to do a tradition that we do here at Calvary every year. I don't know how far this tradition goes back. I know we've been doing it for as long as I've been here, but we uh, light our candles together and sing a closing hymn of Silent Night. So why don't you all stand? I'm going to light, if you get your candle, I'm going to light uh, my candle from the Christ candle, which is the center candle that we've lit this evening. Then I'm going to extend that on to our ushers here, and then they will come and light your candles, pass it on down the row. And this is symbolic of the way that Christ's light comes from heart to heart to heart to heart, shining in the darkness, from the obscurity of darkness to the glory of his life.